Cardassians were advancing on us. Moving through the streets, destroying, killing. I was with a group of women and children when two Cardassian soldiers burst in. I stunned one of them. The other one jumped me. We struggled. One of the women threw me a phaser and I fired. The phaser was set at maximum. The man just, just incinerated there before my eyes. I'd never killed anything before. When I was a kid, I'd, I'd worry about swatting a mosquito. It's not you I hate, Cardassian. I hate what I became because of you. Welcome to Trechnobabble Psychobabble, where art, music, politics, philosophy, and especially psychology meet far beyond the stars and where few have gone before. I'm Elliot, your resident Trek nerd, and would be very happy eating kelp berries and capers. Thank you very much. Sweetheart, I'm not a fish. And I'm Elizabeth, expert Hasperat brine brewer and student of humanoid psychology. Our mission each week is to boldly tackle an idea or ideas through the lens of our beloved franchise, to seek out and explore new perspectives about who we are and who we could be. This week, Elizabeth and I continue our five-part series on the Maquis and discuss the origins of their political movement. We are starting with TNG's fourth season and the episode The Wounded from 1991. It was written by Stuart Charno, Sarah Charno, and by Sari Charmak, with a teleplay by Jerry Taylor and directed by Chip Chalmers. The captain's log informs us that it's been a year since the Federation and Cardassian Empire signed a peace treaty ending the war. Oh, you didn't realize the Federation had been at war with Cardassia for the first three seasons? Well, that's definitely your fault, dear viewer, and not a clumsy writer's room retcon. Anyway, the Enterprise is here to make contact with a Cardassian patrol vessel. To their surprise, said ship immediately opens fire on the Enterprise. After a short skirmish, the Cardassian ship surrenders and claims over the view screen that a Federation ship initiated further conflict between their peoples. Starfleet Command informs Picard that the culprit is indeed one Captain Benjamin Maxwell. The Enterprise is ordered to take along a Cardassian delegation and find and stop Maxwell. Jean-Luc, I don't have to tell you, the Federation is not prepared for a new sustained conflict. You must preserve the peace no matter what the cost. Before too long, they managed to track Maxwell down, despite Gul Dukat's twin brother's concerns. Time is crucial. You have a dangerous man out there with a huge arsenal at his command. If he is intent upon revenge against my people, he must be stopped before he can do more damage. To preserve the peace, Picard shares Federation prefix codes to him. His real name is Maset. While they expect Maxwell's ship, the Phoenix, to be sacrificed by this move, Maxwell proves quite adept and destroys another Cardassian warship and mysterious supply ship. Meanwhile, newlyweds Miles and Keiko O'Brien are learning that they hate everything about each other, or at least each other's comfort foods. More relevant is the fact that Miles once served with Captain Maxwell and is thus expected to advise Picard about his current mission. 
The problem, or at least one of the problems, is that O'Brien hasn't overcome the prejudices he developed during that war we've never seen or heard about. A squad of Cardassian militia made a sneak raid on an outpost. Wiped out close to a hundred civilians. Then it's revenge he's after? That's not what I meant. Maxwell is taking retribution for his own loss. Captain Maxwell would never... Gentlemen, please, let's not indulge in speculation. Miles isn't self-aware of his lingering prejudice. Well, how do you feel about them? Me? I feel fine. I mean, the war's over now. He would never retaliate out of vengeance, no matter what that Cardassian says. They're up to something, sir. You don't care for the Cardassians. I like them fine. It's just, while I know them, you learn to watch your back when you're around those people. Ben Maxwell has just sent more than 600 of them to their deaths. I don't know what to say, sir. But he must have had his reasons. When one has been angry for a very long time, one gets used to it. And it becomes comfortable, like, like old leather. And finally, I'm so familiar that one can't ever remember feeling any other way. While tensions on the Enterprise continue to mount, Maxwell is finally tracked down and beam aboard. He tells Picard he's certain the Cardassians are lying and running secret military supply runs, but he has no evidence. Peace treaty was a ruse. To give them breathing room, time to regroup. And so all alone, you decided to dispose of the treaty. I took the initiative. I did what had to be done. I believe. It is because of what they did to your wife and your children. Not true. Not true. To avenge their deaths. You're a fool, Picard. History will look at you and say, this man was a fool. He orders Maxwell to return to the Phoenix to be escorted to his court-martial. However, Maxwell breaks formation intent on proving his suspicions to Picard and vindicating himself. O'Brien manages to beam himself to the Phoenix and talk, or uh, sing, his former captain down before he escalates the situation beyond repair. I'm not going to win this one, am I, Chief? No, sir. In the end, we see that Picard was right about Maxwell's judgment being compromised by his need for revenge but also that Maxwell was not incorrect in his suspicions about the Cardassians' covert actions. Why didn't you board it as Maxwell requested? I was here to protect the peace. A peace that I firmly believe is in the interest of both our peoples. Captain, I assure you... Take this message to your leader's Galmaset. We'll be watching. So before we started our look at the Maquis specifically, we did an episode about revenge, and that was intentional, Elizabeth, because as we see, that's a pretty potent uh, factor in the mix of what leads these people to the people to uh, the, this terrorist organization. Yeah, revenge and a lot of emotional investment, and not exactly like a rational objective, this is for the good of society you know, kind of motivations that are going on. And I, I think that's something that we'll probably be talking about, like, throughout this podcast, is just, like, the difference between, you know, our our rational, logical selves and our emotional selves, and which one do we think we are? And, like, which one which one do we think is calling the shots, you yeah. know, in any given moment? 
And two examples that popped up for me in this episode of just like very clear, like emotions are driving the ship in this, in this instance was, you know, O'Brien's use of projection and denial, especially when he's talking to Keiko about how he actually feels about the Kardashians. But then when he's actually asked point blank about it, he's like, Oh no, it's fine. I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm totally fine with it. And like, I actually don't think he's outright lying, at least to himself in that moment. Like, I think it's really denial. Like, he is just like, I am not the kind of person that is racist, you know? So, of course, no, I don't have these feelings. Like, he just completely denies that part of his experience because it doesn't align with the kind of person he thinks he is or who he wants to be. But he can see other people are having problems with the Cardassians. Like, that is classic denial and projection right there. I don't feel this way. You feel that way. You know? Yeah, I also think the fact that he, he what he does finally admit um, in Ten Forward is that he, he what he says is, "It's not you I hate, Cardassian. I hate what I became because of you." What, what, what that says to me, it says a couple things. One is so externalized hatred, whether or not you're able to accept it as part of yourself, which most most of us don't. We're always the main character in yeah. our own stories, and the main character is a good guy. Um, but it's this idea that, oh, no, it's more objective than the outright sort of prejudice against a person. I hate the the, the thing. I hate the concept. I hate the ideology, whatever <clears throat> substitute yeah. thing in there. So there's that. But it's also it's like, oh, you hate yourself. You are. Oh, at least I mean, hate might be too strong a word. He doesn't hate himself entirely, but he certainly hates this part of himself so so much that he has to externalize it and project it onto other people, as you were saying. Yeah, yeah, and also he blames the Cardassians for his own actions, and like that—that that really is a gray, murky area. Yeah. Like, as much as I do advocate for like personal self-responsibility, like no one can make you do anything. Like you need to be responsible for your own actions and choices, especially as an adult, you know? And yet when people are put in these impossible situations, we don't always act in the way we wish we would. Yeah. You know, it's one of the things that I appreciate about the way we'll talk more about this as we go along. I have issues with the Maquis as a, as a concept in Star Trek, but I do appreciate the way the story was told in that we start from the bottom. We start with a very sort of personal um, look at the, the little history and the, the, the very, very personal effect that this conflict with the Cardassians had that led to this further political development in the person yeah. of Maxwell and, o- and O'Brien, these, these like two characters in this, in this, um, very intimate story. And this is really the first showcase episode for O'Brien. He's been appearing since the pilot um, on TNG, and we're in the middle of the fourth season here, and this is the first time we get a story that's like about him as a person. And of course... Oh, really? This is the first one? Yeah. And like a year and a half later, okay. he leaves the Enterprise to go on be on, be on DS9. And in a lot of ways, this is like the first DS9 episode before DS9 is DS9, um, oh, yeah. which is appropriate given the subject matter <clears throat> and the character. Um but uh, so O'Brien has his first feature here. Maxwell is, I think, pretty well fleshed out for a, a character of the week, a, a bad, yeah. a bad Starfleet rogue person of the week. Uh, but there's also Picard in all of this, and it's interesting because watching this in real time, we are, I think, naturally on Picard's side fully. Um, he is our 
hero. He is the diplomat. And obviously Maxwell is out of line. Um, and so Picard reeling him in is, is, is a necessary like heroic action. But we know that, well, well he, he recognizes in the end that the Cardassians were not being honest about this. Maxwell was right. Those ships were not carrying scientific equipment, were they? A research station within arm's reach of three Federation sectors. And yeah. Picard is sort of self-consciously saying that a dishonest peace is preferable to an honest war. I think that attitude is a lot of what um, motivates further Maquis action. The, the dishonest part of it? Like, no, we don't want peace if it's under these false pretenses. Yeah, the, 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 dis, the dissonance between the idea... I mean, the Federation... Uh, I think the Federation is genuinely principled, and I often take issue with depictions of it which suggest otherwise. Um, but it wears those... It, wears, it, it is certainly proud of its own... Um, espoused ethics. And I think yeah. for someone who perceives them as being hypocritical, for example, if your piece is based on a lie, then it's going to be really grating to you to be told, um, like like it is for Maxwell, like, hey, we're doing the quote-unquote wrong thing because we're so good. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. aggravating. To, to, it can feel pompous and condescending and moralizing and naive. You're a fool, Picard. History will look at you and say, this man was a fool. I'll accept the judgment of history. When it becomes clear what the Cardassians have done, I will be vindicated. And I also think about that moment with Picard when the Cardassian is like... There you see, we have a warship which could intercept the Phoenix before it's too late. If you will give us the transponder frequency... Or are you going to stand there while our ship is destroyed, Captain? Relay the prefix code of the Phoenix to the Cardassian warship. Sir, they will be able to dismantle its shields. The Phoenix will not have a chance. I cannot allow Maxwell to ambush that supply ship. Then he finally does, but it feels so wrong. You know? Like, there, there's all these moments where it's like, doing the right thing feels wrong. And doing the wrong thing feels right. And I don't have a good, neat answer for that. It's very messy, you know? Well, there's the political side, which we're going to get, get <clears throat> more into. But on, an, on a psychological level, I guess we've never really talked about this. Like, what place ethics have in our psyche? <laughs> uh, that is a huge, huge topic, which I feel like I have barely scratched the surface on. So... My, but my preliminary reaction is it's really unclear how much of that is based in our physiology and like the way we're wired biologically for connection and, and to socialize, you know, um, and how much of that is based on culture. And it's honestly probably a little bit of both, like the, the, that humans have this innate sense of ethics of you know right and wrong good and evil you know that's part of the meaning making um function that we have that really does make us different from like the rest of the animal kingdom is that we have these concepts of right and wrong you know it's like the metaphorical you know eating from the the tree in the garden of eden you know like that's that's the differentiating factor the first one 
You obviously don't put a great deal of faith in this explanation. How much faith do you put in Adam and Eve? A lot of it has to do with social cohesion. And a lot of that can be manipulated, you know. So I, I, it's a big, it's a big topic. I'm not really sure I have anything other than like looking at the many doors and possibilities of like what's there, but it's a, it is a big question. And I think one that philosophers have been trying to answer for centuries, like why, why do we have these senses of good and evil? Why are there these innate ideas about how we should treat other people? And when people violate those, those standards, why, you know, what's behind them? Like, why do we feel so violated in that way? Yeah, the transgression element is is really present here. O'Brien feels that he is above that transgression, and Picard feels transgressed in a, like, duty sense by Maxwell. He's like, You have killed nearly 700 people, and you have taken us to the brink of war. And that's a topic that's going to get repeated a lot um, with respect to the Maquis. And... Starfleet officers who defect to the Maquis. Um, yeah. But with, with Maxwell, you know, he's still living in that war mindset. And for him, it's like, how can you, how can you not engage honestly with who these Cardassians are and what they're yeah. obviously doing? And for him, it, it turns out that he's right, but we can see in this episode that he clearly, it could have been the case that there was nothing actually happening and he is just acting on his trauma response. Yeah. And and I do find that like a really telling moment between him and O'Brien at the end of the episode where O'Brien's like, there is no war. The war is over. You're wrong. The Cardassians live to make war. That's what everybody thinks about the enemy. We're not the same at all. We do not start wars. We do not make surprise attacks on manned outposts. We do not butcher women and children in their homes. Children. We never had the chance to grow up. He's living in a different reality than a lot of other people, you know? And and in a way, we all live in our own kind of version of reality, you know? But we hope that we have enough fundamental agreement about the shared reality that we all have that there can be some kind of consensus. But, you know, if, if Maxwell is right and the war is still happening, that means a bunch of things are true. You know, that wouldn't be true if the war wasn't happening. And so yeah. you have these two distinct ideas about what is real and what values are assigned. And it's these two different schemas that people are operating in. And it's just, I think, a really stark example of something that is true in a lot of more mundane ways and like in everyday occurrences, that people are living in different versions of reality. And what might be true for one person is not true for another. It just depends on, you know, like what kind of glasses are they looking through, essentially. I think that's a really astute observation because with respect to ethics, that does, it hinges on sort of this one fundamental um, agreement about the nature of reality, right? It, are they at war still, but now it's a cold war or covert, or are they at peace? And which truth is the truth um, fully changes the context of everybody's actions here. At the same time, what this reveals is how people are often reduced 
to their adherence to that context. What do I mean by that? I mean, like Picard, it's not that he can't uh, engage with with Miles on this sort of nuance of who who Maxwell might be. And he tells, you know, once the crisis is uh, is over for the moment, he tells Massette. The loyalty that you would so quickly dismiss does not come easily to my people, Gal Massette. You have much to learn about us. Benjamin Maxwell earned the loyalty of those who served with him. If he could not find a role for himself in peace, we can pity him, but we shall not dismiss him. But in the moment, he has to. He feels like he has to reduce Maxwell down to, oh, you're clearly acting totally out of ethical character mm-hmm. because you have this trauma of your family getting murdered by the Cardassians, and everything you do is about that. And I can't, hmm. I can't take in other information right now because my job is to stop you because this is why you're wrong. Why is uh, that his job? I'm not, I'm not sure I follow. Because he was given orders to maintain the peace because um, if they reignite war with the Cardassians, they're not militarily equipped to deal with it because they just had the best of both worlds and they had, all their ships are destroyed and stuff. Um, yeah. You know what I mean? So it, it like doesn't matter whether Maxwell's right or not. Like they cannot afford to be at war right now. They just can't. Well, um, I think there's a difference between like the consequences of somebody's actions and like the boundaries around conduct and like what people will accept within, you know, Starfleet and society and all that and reducing that individual person responsible to being less than a full complex human being. Like Mac, there are consequences for Maxwell's actions, but I don't think... I guess I take issue with the idea that you have to reduce Maxwell as a person in order to do, in order to follow through on those actions and natural consequences of his actions. Mm. You know, we do do that, you know, like think about prisoners, you know, like we, we think like, oh, you're a murderer and, or you, you know, or you raped or, or you stole something and that is all you are. And every other thing about you has been erased. You know, like this is your defining factor right now, and there's nothing else around you that about you that is to be taken into consideration. We do that. It's not great. The New York political class is on fire today over the killing of Jordan Neely, a homeless street performer who was attacked by subway rioters uh, when he was apparently menacing them on Monday. But what we know about him is that he had a documented history of mental illness. Some have alleged he was violent, and indeed he had a record of at least 44 prior arrests. They were pushed to this. They were made to do this. And to make them into victims courts a populist backlash that I don't think Democrats fully understand. They're playing with fire. You know, and I'm not advocating that, like, the people who do hurt other people in really violent, horrific ways, like, they, there should be consequences for those actions. And they are still full human beings that shouldn't be reduced like that. You know, the tagline of our podcast is who we are and who we could be. And I think the Maquis is a really good example of that. It's this tension between who we could be and who we are right now, you know? Like, the Maquis, I think, represents who we are right now. And Mm. our ideal of Star Trek is who we could be. And we see where that falls short and how hard it is to get there.
Our next story, appropriately, is called The Maquis, and it comes from DS9's 1994 second season. Part 1 was written by James Crocker and the entire Voyager creative team of Rick Berman, Michael Piller, and Jerry Taylor, and it was directed by David Livingston. Kira and Dax are doing their whole gal pals thing and are blissfully interrupted by an explosion. Specifically, a Cardassian ship, the Bacnor, explodes moments after leaving the station. We see that a gold-shirted Starfleet officer planted an explosive, uh, sorry, implosive, on the Bacnor before it left. While the nerds investigate, an old friend of Ben's and Curzon's, Captain Cal Hudson, joins Ben in his office. Cal's job is to look after the Federation worlds near the DMZ. TNG's Journey's End covered the details, but suffice it to say, many citizens aren't happy about the way this shook out, and Cal agrees with them. By giving up your status as Federation citizens, any future request you or your people make to Starfleet will go unanswered. You will be on your own. And under Cardassian jurisdiction. I understand, Captain. And we are prepared to take that risk. The treaty gave away their territory to the Cardassians. Territory that these people had invested their lives in. Now, Ben, if you knew them as I do, you'd know why they can't leave. It's a bad treaty. The Federation gave away too much. Meanwhile, Quark is propositioned by a Vulcan woman. No, not that way, sorry, Quark. She wants weapons, guns, torpedoes, explosives, etc. Let's see, Ducat, the real Ducat, has snuck his way into Cisco's quarters, much to Ben's chagrin, but he has his reasons. Morally superior human beings and other members of the Federation. I'm supposed to take your word for that? Of course not. It's my job to convince you so you can clean up your own house instead of forcing us to do it for you, which would certainly endanger the new treaty. During their investigation, it's revealed that there are rogue Cardassians as well, who've bucked their respective authority, armed themselves, and started their own little war in the DMZ. In the wake of that, Sisko and Dukat crash a meeting between Cal Hudson and his Cardassian counterpart, Gullivec. Yvec reveals that the gold shirt from the teaser was captured by them on DS9. His taped confession seems to confirm the existence of human terrorist activity. Oh, and he's dead now. In private, Cal doubles down on his views. The Cardassian authorities were part of a mob that stoned two colonists on the streets of Ropal City three days ago. That's something the Federation can take up with the Cardassians at the highest levels. Well, that will help a lot. When they return to DS9, Kira is to hand to give Ben an earful of her opinion. Starfleet should side with the terrorists, because the Cardassians can't be trusted to keep up their end of the treaty. Meanwhile, Quark's friend, the Vulcan Sakona, and a couple of the humans from the DMZ kidnap Dukat right off the station. After Sisko is reamed out by Starfleet Command, the kidnappers announce themselves publicly via subspace. A group there is taking credit for the kidnapping of Dukat. They're calling themselves the Maquis. Sisko takes a team to recover Dukat, but they are captured by the Maquis, who, it is revealed, are being led by none other than Cal Hudson himself. Rather than keep them as hostages, Cal pontificates a bit at Sisko, then stuns him and his people. Back on DS9, Admiral Necheyev makes a return to the franchise so that Sisko can fail to disclose that Cal has defected, and so that she can get under his skin so that he can, in turn, give a speech to Kira. That smugness is mercifully interrupted by Odo, who calls to inform him that Sakona's accomplice, Quark, of course, has been apprehended. A Cardassian legate arrives to throw Dukat under the bus, 
Retaliations for the Bachnor incident are starting to unravel whatever peace remains in the DMZ, but luckily O'Brien has tracked down Dukat's lightly location. We see that Dukat is failing to be interrogated by Sakona and the other Maquis. Oh, that's right. You're renegades, aren't you? <laughs> or so you'd like to think. Unfortunately, the Federation has taught you your lessons all too well. You simply lack the commitment it takes to do what is necessary. You tell that to the crew of the Bachmore. Oh, anyone can blow up a ship. Ha! But to look your enemy in the eye, knowing you'll remember his face for the rest of your life, now that takes... a stomach. Sisko arrives and rescues Dukat, capturing all but one of the Maquis, who is told to deliver a message to Cal Hudson. More plot things happen to flesh out the weapons smuggling conspiracy, but suffice it to say Dukat and Sisko together manage to stop the smuggling of Cardassian weapons to the DMZ, and so Sisko returns to return Cal's uniform to him, letting him know the Maquis' raison d'etre has ceased to be. But Cal vaporizes his uniform. They're committed now, you see. So in the end, to prevent a real war, Sisko is forced to engage the Maquis in space combat to prevent them attacking a Cardassian target. They're successful, but the Maquis are a thing now. Damn it. Oh, is damn it part of your summary? Yes. <laughs> okay. Sorry. I was like, Did you, do you, are you taking another shot at that? Okay. <laughs> yeah, you know, the scene with Sisko and Kira right after Admiral Nechev leaves, where he says... You look out the window of Starfleet headquarters and you see paradise. Well, it's easy to be a saint in paradise, but the Marquis do not live in paradise. Out there, in the demilitarized zone, all the problems haven't been solved yet. Out there, there are no saints, just people. Angry, scared, determined people who are going to do whatever it takes to survive, whether it meets with the Federation approval or not. Makes sense to me. I think just really sums up the, a, the cognitive dissonance and tension about this whole situation within the Star Trek universe, which is supposed to be like this, like, you know, we've solved all the problems, yeah. right? You know, like, that's kind of its whole shtick. And I also, I, I, I do acknowledge that, like, DS9 as a series is, like, trying to poke holes in that. But here's, like, this really big example of that, of that tension and of that dissonance of, like, it's so much harder to live by these ideals when the other person across from you isn't living by them, you know? Oh, yeah. And that's that's what's hard about this is that on a structural level, I think this setup works really well. It's just that it for me, it's hard um, for the reason yeah. you mentioned. And a lot of the reasons things in DS9 are hard for me to accept is that We've never heard before that the paradise conditions, quote unquote, are restricted to Earth until this speech. It's like, you know, you go all the way back to TNG season one. We have eliminated hunger, want, the need for possessions. We've grown out of our infancy. You've got it all wrong. It has never been about possessions. It's about power. Power to do what? To control your life your destiny. That kind of control is an illusion. We have seen that there are isolated examples where things have fallen apart for political reasons or uh, whatever, but the whole point is that they have replicators. And what replicators mean 
is that they have moved beyond economic scarcity. So no citizen of the Federation is supposed to need anything. People might want things. People might be unhappy or dissatisfied or in conflict for over you know their motivations, and that's fine. And I think that's always going to be part of the human condition. Remember when we talked about Stubbs um, in the t- episode TNG yeah. uh, uh, Evolution? Yeah, yeah. You know, he's a really unhappy, frustrated weirdo, and it's like it, who's willing to blow up a ship to, to finish an experiment? Like there are still issues. Yeah. But he's not starving, <laughs> and no one is, is mm-hmm. the idea. And what's hard What's hard about the Maquis uh, justification here is that, so we're told that these people stay on their, want to stay on their planets. And the episode that I referenced, Journey's End, what, the specific example we see as the start of this is the planet, uh, I don't know if you remember it, but a planet of um, Native Americans, of transposed Indians from yeah. Earth. Well, I came here 20 years ago. I was welcomed by the mountains, the rivers, the sky. I have the deepest respect for your beliefs and the meaning that they hold for your people. Then you can respect the fact that this planet holds a deep spiritual significance for us. It has taken us two centuries to find this place. We do not want to spend Another 200 years searching for what we already have. Even if it meant losing their status as citizens and the protection of Starfleet. And like, well, Starfleet didn't say you must come with us. They said, well, you can stay, but uh, we can't protect you anymore. And your lives might be really difficult. You were to- They were given that option. But it wasn't like, yeah. hey, you're being forced off your land and you're going to lose you know you can't you're not gonna be able to feed yourselves or or house yourselves or 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 take care of your families like that was never a thing it was purely about them wanting to be there and that is the case with the people that we see in this episode too the you know he mentions the 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 guy who uh, samuels the guy who was killed bill samuels was a farmer he cultivated his land for 20 years he raised two children on that land he made something out of that land and the federation told him he had to give it all up to the Cardassians. well he just was not willing to do that it's like that's very lovely and it's sad that obviously like his life turned out the way it is but it's not like he had to farm <laughs> like that was a choice he made and the choice he made was that that was more important than a peace treaty that keeps people alive <laughs> and that keeps these giant powers from like killing and, and, and destroying and disrupting everybody else's lives. It, just, it makes them, to me, feel really, really selfish, even though they're supposed to be portrayed as the victims of these big bureaucracies. You know, so for me, that's what's what's really frustrating is that if it were any other series sci-fi series with other kinds of politics undergirding and other kinds of technology that didn't say, hey, we've eliminated hunger and want and all that stuff. Yeah. If it were a different show that didn't have that prior, it would be totally different. But this, this is Star Trek, you know? Yeah. So it's like they're changing, they're changing the base assumptions about like what resources people have and, and the ways they get to live. Yeah. And, you know, and I think that's actually a really good point about the farming that I hadn't thought about before. You know, like, I understand why the Bajorans need to farm, but why would the Federation colonists 
need to farm if they do have replicators, yeah. you know? And they don't, yeah. <laughs> is the answer. But Yeah, yeah why don't. don't they? Why don't they? Well, the only reasons we're given are, like, these really emotional reasons, <laughs> um, which I don't want to be totally dismissive of, but it's like, you know, they, we tamed the land. We, we, we saw something that was a harsh environment, and we went out and made something of it. That's what Cal says about Samuels, and we hear that. Yeah. We'll hear it later on um, in later Maquis stories, too. It's, it's this very... Uh, we're going to get back, you know, Cal Hudson is a prototype for uh, Michael Eddington, who we're going to do a whole episode about. And okay. he's, you know, he casts himself as as this romantic hero. Yeah. And I, I also just do want to highlight like, oh, there's a value assumption between like rational reasons and emotional reasons. And I'm not necessarily disagreeing with you, but I just as we're talking about ethics and things like that. Yeah. Hey, there's this inherent like if you do something for an emotional reason, our our kind of gut instinct is like, well, that then you shouldn't be doing that if it's for an emotional reason, right? You should only be doing it if it's logical and rational. And it doesn't work that way, you know? But like, <laughs> I just wanted to point out, I just wanted to point out like that just inherent assumption that was just like in, in what you said, and I think is true culturally and, and in this universe, you know, like we're saying like, this is a dumb choice you're making for dumb reasons, you know? That's really fascinating and, because there's that conversation yeah. between what is seen as the most ethical and the least ethical races in Star Trek. There's Sakona and Cork talking about the mm. logic behind the Maquis. Then you agree with our position? Not for a second. Why not? Because your position is illogical. It all comes down to the third rule of acquisition. Never spend more for an acquisition than you have to. You want to acquire Peace. Fine. Peace is good. But how much are you willing to pay for it? Whatever it costs. That's the kind of irresponsible spending that causes so many business ventures to fail. You're forgetting the third rule. Right now, peace could be bought at a bargain price. And you don't even realize it. They have weapons. You have weapons. Everyone has weapons. But right now, no one has a clear advantage. So the price of peace is at an all-time low. This is the perfect time to sit down and hammer out an agreement. Don't you get it? Attacking the Cardassians now will only escalate the conflict and make peace more expensive in the long run. I find it hilarious that, like, Quark is not wrong, you know? <laughs> yeah. And um, small aside, both Quark having, like, that unexpected truth bomb... I thought was really, really good writing. Like you totally think he's going to be full of BS. And then at the end, you're like, oh no, he's right. Crap. Yeah. Um, but also Gul Dukat earlier in, I think the first episode, when Cisco is trying to figure out why the Bachnor was destroyed, like, was mm. it smuggling weapons? Like what, you know, like why did they target this specific Kardashian ship? Yeah. I know you'd love to find some justification for this mass murder to ease your Federation conscience. But if the Bachnor was carrying weapons, I would know. And on the lives of my children, I swear to you, it was not. Damn. That's what people try to do. That's what this country tries to do, isn't it? Like, oh, there's, there's a reason this happened to you. You know, and somehow, even though we're going to say it shouldn't have happened... We can understand it. Like, like that, was, that was a really striking moment for me. But getting back to like emotion versus logic, 
you know, I've talked about like the structure of the brain and how essentially we have three, we have three different brains that are all trying to be coordinated at the same time. We have our reptilian brain, our mammalian brain, and then our prefrontal cortex. And our prefrontal cortex is what makes us human. Like that's the thing we have that most other animals don't, but we still have all those other structures underneath it. And when a human is fighting for survival, the logical rational part of our brain shuts off to save resources. That's why if you're in a really heated argument with your partner, you say things that you really regret later on because you can't think like that part of your brain is offline in a way to save resources and to help you survive. And so like you are operating in this really survivalist instinctual, you know, like I'm going to claw my way out of here no matter what it takes. And then once the threat is over, then the prefrontal cortex can come back online and be like, Oh no, what did I do? You know? And so if the Maquis feel threatened and they do, they say they're fighting for their survival. Then the logical part of their, then the logical part of themselves is taking a back seat. That's, I mean, well, it's echoes of Maxwell again, right? It's, it's a similar thing where you've, you're in this, yeah, this emotional crisis, which is shutting down your reason centers to, to a certain extent. But yeah, what, 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 what is fascinating here is that we've kind of, as, as I mentioned, we, we, we reverse engineered this survivalist uh, context mm. in order to justify the emotionalism. Oh, because like I mentioned, like these, the, the Maquis tend to exhibit this very romantic behavior where they see themselves as these uh, downtrodden little, little person against the, you know, uh, David and Goliath kind of um, yeah. he- heroes because that is satisfying an emotional need, like a psychological need mm. to, to be the hero of the story. I mean, you think about where Cal and Cisco are, that they are set up to be very in similar positions um, in, their, in terms of the backstory. They both have wives who were killed tragically yeah. and are now doing their duty to Starfleet in these kind of backwater, uh, shitty jobs, relatively speaking. At this point, it's the second season of DS9. DS9 is not important yet um, yeah. politically. And the different paths that they take, but Cal has then it seemingly taken that context and said, hey, as a Starfleet officer doing his duty, I don't really matter that much. No one's giving me praise. No, no, I'm not seen as particularly important or interesting or heroic. But if I'm the leader of this downtrodden little cell of, um, you know, people just struggling to survive against a horrible uh, establishment, blah, 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 that gives me endorphins that gives me a and and, well and i don't want to be trivial about it that helps him feel whole again after the the losses that he suffered again it's about sort of saying oh i want to feel this way and socially socially it is acceptable to behave this way if one's survivor survival is at stake as you say like we have we have social codes which kind of map onto what you describe about the way our brains work where oh if you if someone's you know backed into a corner and they they're just their actions are justified in a way that they wouldn't be if they weren't so we back ourselves into the corner in order to do the thing that we want to do even though we never really had to be backed into the corner in the first place we do it to ourselves because we want to get the feeling out and act on the feeling and not act logically we create the logical mm-hmm. framework 
It's sophistry. Um, yeah, there's a lot to unpack in, in <laughs> what you just said. And, um, and I just want to acknowledge, I just want to acknowledge that. And it, it's really complex, you know? So, so first, like, yeah, the, the, the ways we unconsciously create situations which on the outside look like problems that actually give us the excuse to do something we want to do. So I, I want to name that, that like, that is definitely something that happens. There's also an assumption of like defensive structures that you're talking about, about like Cal doesn't want to feel useless and small or like potentially like feel a lot of grief or a lot of shame. And so he is defending against feeling a certain kind of way, you know, which, which, he can feel better about himself if he's feeling powerful and in control and important. And like, that's a whole other like rabbit hole to go down. And I just want to name, like, that's also something that's at play in what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And, and the third thing that's going on in what you just said is the human tendency to rationalize emotional actions and motivations. And, and part of that is our brain wants to come up with a story that matches whatever it is that we're perceiving, you know? So say for example, you know, you eat something, you know, or you ingest a substance that makes your heart rate go like speed up and makes your breathing a little shallow. Mm -hmm. Those are all physiological indications of stress and adrenaline. And it might be caused because of something you ate, you know, or, in, or imbibed or ingested. But your brain is going to pick up on those signals and be like, oh, did I turn the oven off? What if someone's breaking into my house? Like, what if they like, you'll start to like spin a story to match whatever it is that you're kind of perceiving on, on again, like a subconscious unconscious level. If you imagine like an information highway between your brain and your body, 20% of that highway goes from your brain to your body. And 80% of it goes from your body to your brain. So mm. you get way more information from your body <laughs> than your brain can send to your body. Like, hey, have you ever tried to talk yourself out of feeling a certain way? <laughs> That's why it doesn't work. That's why it doesn't work. But if your brain is picking up that your body is feeling stressed, you're going to start coming up with stories about why you're stressed. Yeah. And and so, and and I just wanted to say, like, that's also an example of people rationalizing irrational things because your, your brain can't tell the difference between stressors which are derived from a from like a situation that like oh i'm stressed out because i have analyzed this the, the politics going on here the, the or oh i'm too warm and i haven't eaten enough sugar today or whatever right it, it, your brain doesn't like all it perceives is oh i'm stressed out Basically, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, you can you can train it so that you can start to notice certain things. You know, like I once had a adult substance that made me really anxious, and I was just like, "Oh no!" Like I bet someone's breaking into my apartment right now. Like that was the thought I had in my head, and I'm sitting there being like, "What?" Like I'm like, I bet that there's nothing. There's nothing to justify the fact that like, why would I think that? And I ended up calling just like my partner who I know had like been got recently gotten home. And I was like, hi, can you just tell me that everything's fine at home? And he was like, yeah, it's fine. I'm like, thank you. I just needed to know that. But I noticed that I noticed that like my, my heart was racing 
And all of a sudden I was having all these really anxious thoughts that didn't reflect reality. Yeah. It was more just reflecting like the state my body was in and like my brain was trying to like make a story to justify it. Part I think of modern life is trying to differentiate like what the real threat is. But our bodies still pick up on like this feels like a real threat. Yeah. And our bodies go through its process and its like stress response cycles as if a lion is chasing us, even if it is I'm late to pick up the kids from school. And that's freaking me out. That feels like a lion. When you feel anxious, do you let your anxiety, do you run away with your anxiety? Or do you say, hey, why am I feeling this way? Do I need to eat something? You know, am I stressed about something? You know, in one way, you can think of your ego, which is kind of like your, the, the, your personality's skin. You know, it's kind of just like, it's like, it's like a protective layer against you and everything else that's happening. Hmm. Um, so like how strong is how strong is your ego to like not get swept up by the emotional roller coasters of your life? The minstrel boy to the war is gone in the ranks of death you will find him. His father's sword he hath girded on, and his wild heart strong behind him. Our final story for today takes us back to TNG, the penultimate episode of the series and seventh season called Preemptive Strike. It was written by Naren Shankar and Renea Chivaria and directed by the one and only Patrick Stewart. It also aired in 1994. Rolaren, now a tactical specialist and lieutenant, has returned to the Enterprise. Given her troubled history, she's grateful to Picard for the new path her life and career have taken. I want you to know that I really appreciate your recommending me. If it weren't for you, my life would be a very different one right now. She's just in time to witness an escalation of the Maquis Rebellion. Gullivec is back to berate Picard for the Federation's failure to control the Maquis. The primary issue seems to be that the Maquis' ability to procure powerful weapons from Starfleet, a feat facilitated by the fact that many Starfleet officers are following in Cal Hudson's footsteps and defecting to the cause. Necheyev is back in the story. She's concerned that the Maquis are growing, becoming bigger, bolder, and more heavily armed. She and Picard agree that Lieutenant Rowe is an ideal candidate to infiltrate the Maquis and become an operative. Rowe mentions a former instructor of hers who defected to the Maquis, whom we will later learn is Chakotay. Rowe skillfully manages to pass as a disaffected Bajoran Starfleet washout, probably because her cover story is so very close to the truth. That credibility quickly buys her a meeting with the local Maquis cell. So it appears her mission is a success. The Maquis are eager to recruit her into their ranks. The cell leader, Macius, trusts her implicitly. He seems to see Rose's underlying motives even before she can. We've learned to be cautious of strangers. I understand. But I've known since I first met you that in your heart, you're one of us. Indeed, it turns out Roe is having second thoughts, betraying the Maquis to help the Cardassians, given what they did to her own people. Picard informs her that the Federation is setting a trap for the Maquis, in manufacturing a target that would imply the Cardassians are planning to use bioweapons against the humans in the DMZ. Roe performs her duty, despite reservations, but Macius is killed in a Cardassian raid on their cell. This seems to be a turning point for Roe as she tries to lie to Picard in their final scene together. She tries to get him to call off the trap, but he sees through her deception, ironically enough. I could put you before a board of inquiry for having lied to me about this operation. I would certainly have you court-martialed if you sabotage. Now, it's your decision. 
I'll carry out my orders, sir. I feel it necessary to have Commander Riker go back with you. He can pose as a relative. I just want to make sure that nothing happens to obstruct this mission. However, in the end, Roe chooses to betray Starfleet and sabotage the mission. She conveys a message to Picard through Riker, who's been assigned to escort her, before beaming away to stay with the Maquis permanently. Picard has no words for this, but his look of contempt and pain say a great deal. So I did not realize that Patrick Stewart directed that episode, and that makes <laughs> it all the more fascinating to me, especially because so much of it is the dynamic between him and Roe and, and the betrayal that he ultimately feels from her. Yeah, it's impressive on a lot of levels. I mean, also, yeah. um, he, so this production-wise, let's see, he was, he directed this episode and was in a lot of it. Um, and then the very next episode is All Good Things, uh, the finale, and Picard's, I think, in every single scene of that episode, which is a two-parter or like a double-length serious yeah. finale. He's like in every scene as like old man Picard, you know, all of that. Um, it, it, does he also direct that one? No, <laughs> but he's, okay. you know, he's doing a lot of acting. And then right after this, he started filming uh, Generations, which we talked about, which has a lot of Picard in it, a lot of Patrick Stewart in it. Oh, yeah. And they were doing a, a documentary about TNG at the time because it was wrapping up. They were doing like a like they had crew on the set, like doing like a behind the scenes thing. Yeah. Where in the heck is the bathroom on the Enterprise? And I, I remember this because there's a famous story of him like getting really pissed off and yelling at the the, they're all there to be like, yay, we love TNG, we love you. But he's like, shut yeah. the fuck up. I'm so stressed out. <laughs> you, know, you know, I know you and I are just, are in the middle or just coming out of a really intense work period and where I think we also felt like I am just doing the absolute maximum and I have no space or time for anything else and my fuse is very short. So I have a lot of sympathy for <laughs> Patrick Stewart in that situation. So speaking of Captain Picard, Patrick Stewart, um, yeah. what what stood out to me in this episode on a character level, especially was Rose's relationship with these three older men in her life, uh, clearly doing a kind of father figure thing. She's got yeah. uh, Captain Picard, her the, the person who saw something in her that turned her life around at one point and yeah. gave her a second chance to be a Starfleet officer, Starfleet officer and his influence and support of her is what gave her this opportunity not to just be in jail <laughs> and yeah. uh, kind of wash out. Uh, she's got Macius, the cell leader, who seems to like see right through her and see, this isn't really you. You is this person who's a Maquis, who's fighting against the, the established power, not part of the established power. And then she's got, of course, her, her dead father, her real father, um, yeah. who... When I was very young and afraid of monsters under my bed, He played for me. He said that the Clavian had special powers. Monsters were afraid of it. When he died, I realized even he couldn't make all the monsters go away. He died a victim of the circumstance created by the same political situation that they're still dealing with as she's an adult um, and how much that hurt her. I think victim is a very loaded word. Mm. And I'm curious as to what you mean 
by using it in this instance and especially what that word means to row and i know we're all just like it's all conjecture because we're not really row and row is not really a person (laughs) um you know but um so do you think that like she wishes her dad wasn't a victim or is she mad at the social structures that killed him and are still in place I think this ties back to what we were just talking about um, with respect to justifying an emotional catharsis through mm. a constructed logical framework in right. that the, the real target should be the fact that this political situation has resulted in the suffering of Roe specifically and her people at large, obviously. Um, yeah. But you can't, I don't think it's possible to have that kind of emotional, that, that, that level of emotional connection to something so lofty. You know what I mean? It's like, mm, yeah, yeah. The, it, we, we have it has emotional, to be real for you somehow. It has to be real. And I think it has to have like a face and that can be negative. Like seeing a Cardassian, you know, we see this a lot with Kira, who's a kind of a Romark two character. Um, and, where uh, you you see a person, or I mean, Rose, this way too, you see a Cardassian person and it's like you, you react, even though that particular Cardassian probably did nothing to you specifically or even your family. It's like you represent this, so I'm mad at you. But even in a, a non-sort of direct context, she sees her dad as a victim and resents the fact that that is what he left for her and she definitely doesn't want to be one. We saw Rose struggle with even accepting her people's like religious beliefs at one in another episode. We're dead, Jordy. What are you saying? That we're some sort of spirits? Spirits? Souls? My people used to call them Borhas. Whatever term you want to use, wear it. On the one hand, she's proud to be a Bojoran, but she's also ashamed of the fact mm. that her people are perceived as like the galaxy's victim of this occupation. Yeah, like a little bit of internalized racism there, you know, or internalized homophobia, you know, like pick your pick your own self-hatred based on, you know, your people's position in society. Yeah. And I think that is a lot of what defines her personality or at least the edges of it, where she's she's pretty abrasive, especially the earlier episodes that we saw her in. I mean, she it's weird because she's her least abrasive in this episode of TNG. You seemed a bit overwhelmed by all the attention. Well, to tell you the truth, I I really want to see everyone. I would just rather do it one at a time. Well, you look very fit, Lieutenant. Tactical training seems to agree with you. Well, you know me. I enjoy a challenge. That school is more than a challenge. Half the class washes out every year. Although somehow, I didn't think you would be one of those. You know, it, it, I, I want to go back to what you said about, you know, Roe seeing just a random Cardassian on the street and then her using that person is like, you represent this whole thing to me now. So not only is that a way to like not see a whole person, you know, which like we've been talking about in a way, like that's also, it's a kind of projection that is often called transference. So projection, when we use that word is usually about like qualities you know, it's just like, you are like this, or, you know, like you, 
I'm going to, I see something in you that I don't like in myself. So I'm going to be like really hypercritical about that in you because it like, because I can't stand that in myself. That's one kind of projection. But when it's about like the kind of relationship or like relationship dynamics that end up being repeated with different people, that we call transference because you're transferring the blueprint of a relationship that you had with one person onto another. It's like you see a Cardassian and you're going to assume they're going to act exactly like this one Cardassian in your life. Like that's one, that's one version of it. And another version of it is like, oh, hey, Picard, Macias, I see you as father figures. I see you as like, I'm going to, I'm going to take the relationship that I had with my dad. And that is going to start happening between us in a way that like feels familiar to me. And I'm going to be wanting certain things out of this relationship and expecting certain things out of this relationship, you know, because I see you as a kind of father figure. And like, that's all happening way below the surface. You know, like some people are aware of these things and most aren't. But, you know, like, but that, that is what ha- is happening on like a psychological level is like you're, you're attempting to have the same kind of relationship with somebody else. And it's whether or not like how smoothly does that go? Yeah. Is that a good kind of dynamic that you're trying to recreate? How does it get interrupted and changed? You know, and so, so, you know, as, as a, as a therapist, we're kind of, we're looking for transference, you know, it's just like oh, hey, like, who am I to this person I'm talking to right now? What role are they trying to, like, give me, you know? And, like, how do you work with that? Yeah, I wonder, uh, you know, so Macy's death is the turning point for Roe in terms of basically deciding. I mean, she doesn't make the decision right then and there, but at that point, emotionally, she's uh, at the point of no return. Um, And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that her dad did die, her real dad, and that, it, like so she's struggling between these two paths these two father figures and if like say for whatever reason Picard had died instead of Macius and in, in, for some reason would then yeah. her feeling be like hey I can address or redo or whatever I don't know what maybe what the right word is but somehow address this unre- these unresolved issues I have with my dead father only with the the, the father figure who is literally dead again. <laughs> Um, because that, that, that relationship now is fully one-sided, right? Uh, Mazius is dead and all she's left with is the legacy that he left her of like saying, I think you're this, I believe these things about you are true. And these are the ways in which you can demonstrably prove to me that like you're a good daughter, right? Whereas with the card, if she had let's say she had made a different choice and decided to go ahead with the, um, you know, betraying the Maquis and doing her, her duty as a, as an operative, then Picard would have been pleased with her as a, as a, as her captain, but she would have to like live with that ongoing issue of like, Hey, I don't feel good about this. I'm angry with you for making me do this dad, <laughs> whatever. Like it's an ongoing relationship that is a struggle. And I think that may, that, partially drives Rose's actions here to say it's a closed loop. Joining the Maquis mm-hmm. is a way to um, have like more definitive, um, like a, a way more... to meet expectations, a closed yeah. way to meet expectations. That's a really good way to put it. Yeah. It's like, ah, I did the thing. I succeeded. I'm a plus, you know what I mean? There's no, yeah. 
there's no complexity, less complexity to it. I think that it's a solid interpretation. And I still, I, I actually think no matter which way she would have gone, there could have been this resentment of you made me do this. Because in both situations with Picard and Macius, she's trying to fulfill the expectations of another person. Mm. And that is how she can feel like she'll receive love and, and validation only if she does what they want her to do. And what she actually wants is kind of sidestepped, you know? And, and I do think that's actually a really good point that you bring up about, like, depending on which one died, definitely could have swayed her differently. Like, you know, if Picard had, di- Picard had died, that she totally could have been like, now I have to side with Starfleet, you yeah. know? But I, I, I still think, yeah, but I still think there's a little bit of the, like, Macias, you made me do this, that's still at play. Yeah. That is a really good example of, of just like why this is transference. Because it doesn't matter which way it goes. It's the same issue. Yeah. Uh, not to spoil too much, but we are, we're going to end our look at the Maquis by looking at Rose unexpected and uh, likely final appearance in Star Trek, where she returns in the most recent season of, um, of Picard, which is airing at the moment. Um, and so we're going to definitely circle gonna, back to Roe. <laughs> you're going to make me watch Picard? <laughs> it's better. It's it's better. <laughs> okay. I believe you. I will get to it eventually. I was reading like show notes, like preparing for today. And I just, I came across that. They actually like, they wanted Roe Laren to be Kira Norris. Um, mm-hmm. But because that actress didn't want to do it. They, you know, like rewrote the character. But I, I thought that was that was an interesting, like, alternative universe for me to think about. Like, what if Roe had been there? Yeah, it's it's one of those. What it, I mean, I think what they did with Kira was great for the most part. Um, yeah. And I think uh, Nana Visitor is tremendous, as is Michelle Forbes. Like, I, I hate to pit them against each other um, in any no, both yeah, characters not... and the actresses. But it is sometimes you're like, oh my gosh, this would have been amazing. <laughs> it's amazing both ways. But yeah, it's just, it's just a like, oh, you know, for the road not taken. What what could have that been like? You know, again, like what if Picard had died? The road not taken. <laughs> you, you haven't made me immortal. Oh, relax, man. Everyone was paying attention. We took care of you. We designed a cellular homeostasis algorithm that should give you more or less the same number of years you would have expected without the brain condition. Another ten. The minstrel fell, but the old man's chain could not bring that proud soul under. The heart he loved ne'er spoke again, for he tore its cords asunder and said no chain. So I. Uh, noticed there was a lot of food in these episodes, which at first there um, was a lot of food. <laughs> yeah, there's there's the uh, the Keiko and Miles fighting over their cultural heritage stuff. What are these little dark things? Capers. And then there's the, this whole thing about farming and the central place that the, the romantic place that has in in the Maquis sort of self image. Bill Samuels was a farmer. He cultivated his land for 20 years. And then there's, uh, you know, 
the connection of that like Bajoran historical food that Macias yeah. and Roe connect over. My father used to make the strongest hasbrat you've ever tasted. Everything else seems mild by comparison. Did he teach you how to make it? Yes. But I haven't, I haven't tried it in years. If you would make the brine for a really strong hasbrat, I mean a eye-watering, tongue-searing strong, you'd make an old man very happy. I would enjoy making it again. And so at first it feels like a sort of superficial element, but the more I think about it, the more it actually seems to be something a little bit deeper in that, you know, food is very emotional for most humans. You know, it, it is connected to memory. It's obviously, it ties into what we talked about before about this idea, you know, when we're starving, when we're hungry, that creates that survival, survivalship mode, modality in our, in our bodies and our brains. Um, and it also, you know, we have a lot of connections between sitting down at a table and, and, and eating together and what that means in terms of community and family. Um, there's actually like a lot of important psychological elements to it. Yeah. And I actually think that's very key to the origins of the Maquis um, in that it is, as we talked about, it is at its core an emotional outgrowth a uh, it, it is sensing a a, 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 a it, it is addressing a, a an emotional need on a social level for these people and it is also um as we saw in preemptive strike and we'll later see when voyager premieres like it is p- people are drawn to the maquis plight um because they feel sympathy for what they're going through yeah. Even though, as we said, it doesn't quite make sense logically, there is this, um, and people will often couch their arguments in these political terms, it is really just about feelings. You know, think about Maxwell, for example, and how, let's say he had been totally wrong in his assumptions about what the what the Cardassians were doing in terms of their smuggling of weapons, which he wasn't, but let's say he had been, his actions would have been identical, in which case... We almost had an, a reigniting of a war between the Federation and Cardassian Empire um, that the Federation was not prepared to deal with because this guy is has unresolved emotional issues. This one guy. And we look at our own sociopolitical contexts sometimes and we think, ah, these people must have motivations beyond emotions. And usually they do in terms of like money and corruption and all that. Another episode. Yeah. But they also are humans, most of them. You know, not not Henry Kissinger. I don't think he's a human. But a lot of these people probably have human emotions and are are influenced by them. And that's actually kind of a terrifying thought, at least to me. Yeah, I remember feeling very terrified when I realized that the world is held together with duct tape and bubblegum. Again, like that's what this Maquis tension is all about that's what this whole like podcast and star trek is about like who who are we and who could we be and like how do we get there and why is that hard you know but um but i think you're right that like you know food food is very cultural you know like what is disgusting in one culture is Mm. just really basic in another but like the body will eat it so like we have all these like cultural expectations and preferences and hangups around food. It's also a way of building community. It's, and you know, it's also, I think a way of experiencing pleasure, 
you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, l- humans have figured out how to do amazing things with food and we eat it because it t- they taste good, you know, like, mm-hmm. a- and, and there's a lot of emotional, sensual reasons for all those things that we r- r- rationalize away. I just, I think it creates this, um, this romantic ethos mm. that uh, drives a lot of this. Let's go to the market. Let's get food for a feast, for a celebration. A celebration of what? Of absolutely nothing. Just to celebrate. Our characters are, in this case, proto-Maki to, to like beginning Maki characters. They, they tend to revel in that aesthetic uh, in a way that I think is very telling. Um, you know, you look mm-hmm. at Maxwell again, and he, just like O'Brien, is totally in denial about the role that his trauma is playing in his motivation. Why would a man with a long and brilliant service abandon the fundamental principles that he has believed in, even fought for all of his life? I believe it is because of what they did to your wife and your children. Not true. Not true. To avenge their deaths. And it's like, why is he doing what he's doing? The, re- the answer is vengeance. Uh, on a core level, the answer is vengeance. The fact that there are um, like logistical, political reasons that can work out is incidental. That wouldn't yeah. be enough to get him to do the things that he's doing. Yeah. And then you look at the relationship between Cal Hudson and Cisco. Tell Cal Hudson I haven't told Starfleet anything yet. Tell him we can still solve this thing together, but we're running out of time. Tell him I still have his uniform. He can have it back any time he wants. Right, for most of the episode, he keeps yeah. that to himself because he has this hope that their relationship, their friendship, and their like what he thought was their shared sense of duty to Starfleet would bring them back together and back to the same side. Very emotional decision, right? Completely emotional decision. That's that's a defining yeah. feature of care of Cisco as a as a captain and as a character, um, and what it ends up being is that they do share a similar view of of loyalty. It's just that the the target of that um, that emotion has is different. Has changed. It's just a uniform, Ben. But now I've got something better. These settlers, Ben. If you saw all they have accomplished without any help from the Federation, then you'd fight along with them. They've traveled out here to the back of the beyond and built homes out of the wilderness. Now, maybe the Federation can turn their backs on them, but I can't. And then, of course, you've got um, Rolaren. Did you notice how the last scene that she and Picard have together, he is telling, you know, she's trying to trick him. She's trying to tell him. We have to cancel the mission. Why? Well, the Marquis didn't go for the bait. They think the convoy is too big a target. Aaron, what's going on? I thought that I could do it. Even though it meant helping the Cardassians, even though it meant betraying people who were fighting against them. Now I'm not sure where I stand. Sir, I don't want to let you down. I swear that I don't. This has nothing to do with me. This is about you. If you back out now, you'll throw away everything you've worked for. No 
only question for you is, can you carry out your orders? As he's saying that, they're both covertly playing as uh, she's pretending to be a prostitute and him a John. And she he's handing her money as this conversation's happening. Do you have the money I asked you to bring? Yes. Put some on the table. What? By this time, you should be negotiating my price. I hadn't thought about that. Like, the the meta level of, like, yeah. is is that what's going on? Yeah, I almost wonder if, if Rose, like, looking at this sack of space coins or whatever and, and thinking, like, what am I? What am I doing? Why am I doing mm-hmm. this? I think the first time I watched the, the Rose Laren episode, I sympathized more with Picard and Star Trek and just, like, oh, no, how could she? Um, mm-hmm. but the second time, like watching it to, in preparation for today, I empathized more with her and seeing Picard's devastation and betrayal and anger at the end was like really, um, powerful and uncomfortable for me. And like just that cognitive dissonance I thought was really interesting and just how you can re- you know, the same person watching that episode at two different points of their life, like sympathized with one side more than the other. And then that changed and just how much everyone can like see different things watching, watching an episode like that. You know, I'm thinking about the um, original TNG episode with um, Guldicott's twin and Picard, you know, <laughs> right, for, right. Um, I just was like, hi, Guldicott. Oh no, that's not you. All right. Mark Adamo, <laughs> right? Um, uh, Alimo. Yeah. Alimo, okay. Yeah. Anyway, um, you know, we, we see it there with Picard really resisting giving the Cardassians, like, the Federation ship's code. Yeah, yeah. And he finally does it, but it feels so wrong. Sir, they will be able to dismantle its shields. The Phoenix will not have a chance. You cannot allow Maxwell to ambush that supply ship. Mr. Wolf, now. Yes, Captain. And it ends up, like, not helping anyway, which I thought was, like, a really, I don't know, just poignant. That whole scene was very poignant to me, just to, like, see, you know, the battle happening from afar and the Cardassians still getting destroyed. It's the reason Picard isn't in the Maquis, is the answer to your question, is that, mm. um, at least not until the movies... Maybe we'll circle back to what? Spoiler! <laughs> no, that's not spoiler. spoiler. No, he doesn't, doesn't go on the Maki. Uh, he does do his own insurrection in in the insurrection. Um, that's a whole other conversation. It is related in that the Maki were partially the brainchild of Michael Piller, who wrote Insurrection, and it's a similar deal with like these displaced, sad people on the land and the big bureaucracy coming and blah 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 blah. In that case, Picard decides to side with the little people. Anyway. Um, Picard feels that same tension that Ro feels, that Cisco, that Cal, all these characters feel between the right thing and the right thing, the wrong thing and the wrong thing, depending on how you look at it. Yeah. And the other characters, the characters that side with the Maquis or the Proto-Maquis or whatever, um, are led by what feels right. Picard feels wrong giving the codes, as you say, to, 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 to the Cardassians, but he knows it's yeah. the right thing to do. The Roe knows that betraying Starfleet is the wrong thing to do, but it feels right. Yeah. Right? 
And yeah, what do you do when, when your logic and emotional self are in conflict? You know, who, who do you value more, you know? And that's, I think, going back to that scene in the Maquis between Quark and, S- and Sakona is, I think, then becomes sort of central to this. You have these mm-hmm. people who, you know, Quark has, by human standards, no ethics. And Vulcans, uh, you know, Sakona, most Vulcans have, by human standards, um, unachievable ethics. Um, so the fact that they come in this conversation and both, uh, it, it's a really fascinating idea that there's like this sort of capitalist viewpoint that that cuts down the logic to such a yeah. to such an extent that it's like you're missing the forest for the trees here lady <laughs> like you're going through all of this moral compromising and subterfuge and blah 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 when it's like hey what do you want what do you want you want not to be subjugated and in danger you want peace you want to be safe what is the easiest cheapest way to get there there's an answer the minstrel boy shall return again torn perhaps in body not in spirit and then may he play his harp in peace in a world as heaven has intended when all the works of war shall cease and every battle must be I remember telling someone recently that like, you know, like, oh, I do a Star Trek podcast, you know, and like, I'm really cool. Uh, and they asked me, I'm like, oh, what do you think? Do you what do you think of Star Wars then, for example? You know, like was, was what they were asking me about. Like, do you like other franchises? Um, and the conversation we ended up ha- having was like the difference between <clears throat> Star Trek and Star Wars, for example, you know, whereas Star Trek in general is is optimistic like look at where we could go if we're able to overcome like these societal political issues that we're dealing with right now like look at what look at what we could be you know Mm -hmm. like in this like aspirational optimistic like here's the best case scenario like isn't that nice to think about whereas star wars is the complete opposite of like look how bad this can go <laughs> you know <laughs> essentially like look what it could be like living under a incredibly oppressive regime and the optimism about overcoming that and like the small you know david being goliath and all that but it's like two very different directions as to like where civilization can go is 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 a very broad way of differentiating the two and yet in ds9 and and the maquis with star trek we're seeing how it could go the other way. You know, we're seeing how hard it is to get to a place where everyone's playing by the same nonviolent rule book. And, you know, it is great when everyone that you're interacting with is above board and has done their emotional work and is not manipulative and isn't doing shitty things for shitty reasons it's super easy to like be in relationship when everything's going well when it's easy but when people don't behave perfectly you know and we do end up in these like i have to survive no matter what it takes even if it's not ideally what i want to do or how i want to be in the world i still have to survive and i i just really like you know, kind of similar with like Andor, which, you know, we've talked about on another podcast, which is brilliant. Um, you know, Star Wars is starting to like, 
instead of it being black and white, the good and the bad, they're making it gray, Mm -hmm. which is like, honestly, a maturation step that all humans also want to take. Like we start out with a lot of black and white thinking and you want to get to complexity and nuance and gray. And whereas Star Trek has been, this is all great, you know, and now they're making it gray and they're showing why it's so hard to get to to get to this where we could be stage, mm. you know, and, and, and they don't really have a solution, you know, about like, how do we overcome these problems? It's just saying, here are the problems. It's a lack of imagination on one hand to think that there's no other way to solve them, but we can get there, but there's this big gap, you know? And, and so I'm, I'm I just want to appreciate the different ways in which these franchises are trying to introduce nuance and trying to really have the viewers sit with like, it's not that easy. Yeah. I I was struck by the fact that you mentioned you viewed, it was specifically preemptive strike differently. The the most recent time you watched it compared to Mm -hmm. the first time or last time um, in that you previously had instinctually decided with Picard and Starfleet and then found yourself being more on Rose's side this time, as you say, graying the scale a bit. Um, And I think Mm -hmm. in general, that's, that's a good thing. It's a good thing for fiction to do. It's a good, especially fiction dealing with politics because politics usually are gray. The, the problem is sometimes that grayness is a shield to, um, (laughs) <laughs> to, to deflect from things which are maybe a little bit more black and white. And that's something I think we're going to see as we move forward with this series that we're doing about the Maquis is um, we've identified that there's, there's a, there's a political issue, which is contrived as we talked about with, mm-hmm. with the fact that there is no scarcity in the Federation. What, what is motivating you to behave this way? Maki people, what really? And we've lost sight of that. And now we're focused on, well, you betrayed me. People, Roe, Cal, Maxwell, you have, you said you were going to do this thing, you, you know, in loyalty to Starfleet, and instead you did this other thing. Fuck yeah. you. <laughs> and now the Maquis issue is about that. And I think those are little tiny, um, you know, personal examples of how that actually is happening in a broader political sense, where it used to be about something but we've lost sight of that. And now we're talking about something entirely different, Um, but it's still motivating the same action. It's still undergirding violence and theft and disunity in a way that is, it's upsetting. And, you know, it's uh, creating this, this terrorist situation ongoing um, within the franchise. And obviously we're going to continue to look um, at those issues as we move forward. Humans love reciprocity. You know, it's kind of, it's one of the things that's like, like, like our need for social connection. Reciprocity is something that we need, you know, so thank you. You're welcome. I love you. I love you too. Like the, the, the ping pong that comes back and forth, right? We understand that it like with social niceties, it's kind of the same thing going on in revenge. Mm -hmm. You hurt me. So I'm going to hurt you. It's like the dark side of, oh no, that's a Star Wars reference. (laughs) It's the dark side of reciprocity. There you go. Um, And one of the things that is super challenging is to, you know, is to not fight back and is to not immediately ping back the hurt and anger that you receive 
onto someone else. Yeah. You ha- like, and that is something that is super hard to do and takes practice and skill to be able to like receive something awful and toxic and digest it and send it back processed and changed. You know, like that is something that is hard for therapists to do. <laughs> it's hard for most people to do. But like that's that's what changes. Because otherwise it's a closed system yeah. that is just like the same anger and violence just gets ping pong, like, you know, ricocheted around and it never transmutes. That's maybe my optimistic view on like, how do you stop things like this from happening is someone has to change it. Someone has to transmute it. Someone has to be able to take on this stuff and send it back changed. Yeah. Well, we're going to see how Star Trek deals with that because there's more to say. Yeah. Next week we are going to uh, be entirely on Voyager to look at the Maquis as, as like a people and what their methods are, how they live, how they operate. Um, and so we'll, we'll get a, a closer look and see how this kind of trauma and this ricocheting of, of, of toxicity and violence um, manifests in a context where there's no one, there literally is no one to fight against, right? Because in the Delta Quadrant, yeah. there's no Cardassians. Um, so it's, it's going to be uh, an interesting look here. Is transference coming back? I feel like transference is going to be coming back. Oh, I can't like, imagine. Oh, this is the exact same thing. No. <laughs> I can't no. imagine that happening at all. We'll have to find out. <laughs> uh, Elizabeth, uh, thank you so much for your wonderful insights and taking the time to talk with me. Um, I look forward to continuing our conversation next time. Me too. See you then. See you next time. <laughs>